hi. Uh, welcome to Rounding the Earth. I'm Matthew Crawford. I'm the host today, and uh, I'm, I've got a special guest today, Oliver Studd, who is at the forefront of the practical use of cryptocurrency uh, within the banking system. And this isn't like um, the banking system as in what's going to happen with the Federal Reserve once cryptocurrency is, is part of uh, that ecosystem. It's more like, hey, um, you know, what is it that we do to make banking work locally the way that it used to, community banking? And it's not that community banks don't exist, but they kind of barely exist these days. And let's uh, let's bring in Oliver, and we're going to talk about the history of community banking, what it means to people, and how it is that that problem can be solved. Hi, Oliver. How are you? Hey, good to see you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let you uh, uh, give us a, a better uh, a better introduction to yourself. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, know exactly what I said about you, but you're the CEO of Valhalla Network. Yeah, and uh, you want to walk us to how you got involved in that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was working with, well, he was my professor, actually, Richard Werner, um, who's the inventor of quantitative easing and the father of, um, as I like to call it, Wernerian economics, which is his... Uh, theory of um, macroeconomics um, built on empirical data. And he's also the writer, the author of the Japanese number one bestseller, Prince of the Yen. So I was very fortunate that Southampton University, who was my professor and uh, for international banking, he taught very differently to how most lecturers and professors in economics like to teach people. Instead of teaching you um, lies <laughs> and um, what the world would look like and how economics would work in a perfect world, um, filled of axioms and assumptions. Um, Richard talked very differently, which is this is actually the world we live in, and this is actually how macroeconomics works and the impact it has. Um, and uh, you know, it was, it was amusing actually because most economic theories don't even include banks or money in their um, in their theories, and yet that's the core principle of um, Wernerian economics. Uh, so he taught me and um, stayed in close contact. I worked HSBC commercial banking space for a couple of years in London. And then I resigned from them um, because they weren't, I, I didn't see them as going in the direction I wanted them to go. I didn't see it as the most ethical banking partner. And also they weren't helping small businesses enough. Also being one of 230,000 employees wasn't really what I wanted. <laughs> so, um, so I decided instead to leave them and I joined forces with Richard Werner again um, in at Local First. Uh, which I'm a director of a community interest company, which is all about promoting the establishment of community banks and the impact they have and the benefits that community banking brings. So I was working with him um, and working with the councils in Hampshire and helping Hampshire Community Bank go through the application process and um, and complete the, the relevant regulatory documents, which, as you can imagine, for a banking license is, is very difficult. <laughs> um, and then... As I was working on that last year and working with the councils, I realized that it is very inefficient. Um, councils, as you know, I don't know, in, in America, I guess it's like municipals or whatever's in charge of them. Um, you know, smaller, smaller areas. I'm not sure um, what the equivalent is really in, in the US, but in the UK, councils are very inefficient to deal with and take a very long time to make decisions and can be very supportive of it and want to do it, but then they just don't do it because of some red tape or some government regulation that makes it difficult on their books. So I realized it was it was inefficient. And I was talking to a friend of mine at the time, and he was talking to me about DAOs. I was um, in the crypto space doing a little bit of investments. 
And he spoke to me about DAOs and how they work. And I thought, well, look, that sounds much more efficient. And also it allows the banking system that we're trying to create to be actually more democratic and more um, actually owned by the people rather than through the council and using taxpayer money. It's actually owned and governed by the people. So that's all the idea, really. I put together the idea of... um... Are you back? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, Actually, if I could stop you right there, um, let's uh, frame that for just a moment. So over the years, um, community banks um, sort of became the less efficient part of the banking markets, let's say. Um, And, you know, is, is that because regulation just sort of tended to tilt toward the larger entities, which could then be um, more efficient in the way that they operated? Is it part of the same game where everything tilts against small business? Slightly. Um, There's a little bit of that, but also just to do with acquiring. So over time, things are more likely to centralize. Of course, that's not the same in, in physics and the universe. Things are more likely to spread out and get chaotic and entropy. Why are increases. things more likely to centralize? Is, is that is that it's necessary just, or is it is, is there some aspect of the system that we've been living under for decades or perhaps centuries that would call it? Well, for centuries, we had lots of community banking. That was the way most people did their banking, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, over the last 150 years in the UK, the banking system has centralized um, incredibly. There used to be lots of banks, lots of small banks and building societies and stuff like that. And the reason for centralization is it's effectively because the more money you have, the easier it is to make money and easier to lose it, but um, the easier it is to make money. So yeah, exactly. So these big banks weren't, it wasn't so much that small banks were failing or that they were struggling, although regulations are make it difficult for small banks to start up. Um, because you've got general regulatory costs. So, for example, the fee for a small bank might be the same as the fee for a larger bank, and yet the completely different revenue streams and, and amount of money coming in. So it is a little bit of that, but it's mostly that these big banks were looking at the small banks saying, okay, great, you're profitable, you've got a good business model, we like you, and we want to buy you out. So they just acquired and started centralizing the banking system over time. Of course, the problems this has is as the big banks grow and it centralizes more and more, the actual ethos and, and what community banks did was, was eroded and taken away because the banks just um, centralized their um, operations as well, one balance sheet sort of thing, and um, and then focused on different fish. Well, what, what is the difference? Uh, you know, why should I prefer to be able to go to a community bank and ask for a loan than to go to, you know, one large bank that serves, you know, it, let's say in the U.S., many states or, or uh, you know, uh, a, a national bank in the UK? Yeah, so if you're a small business, then you likely won't even get a get a relationship or, or a meeting with a big bank. If you're a big business, fine, go to the big bank, they want you. You know, they, they'll happily talk to you because they can give you a large amount of money and they can make lots of money off you. But if you're a small business, they're not interested. Um, so we did a survey last year through Local First that found over two thirds of businesses, small businesses, don't even approach their bank to ask for any help because they won and the hassle of applying and trying to get it and two because they think that they're just going to get rejected anyway and over 60 percent believe that they they voted that it's very hard to get financing or funding from their bank so actually i'm I'm going to stop you here and and relate a personal story um about 12 years ago i had started a small business myself um i i had uh you know built it from almost scratch like sixteen thousand dollars and i had uh in the in the bank in the account for the company i had uh, one hundred twenty thousand dollars 
Um, I was curious about, you know, what it would take to expand the company. And, and just, just to find out, I asked uh, my banker, I said, you know, uh, what kind of a loan can I get? You know, and I was thinking of number like, you know, $100,000, um, you know, obviously with $120,000 in the bank, you know, I don't really need a loan until the number gets, you know, substantial. Um, but I was told that I could take out a $20,000 loan at 22% interest. <laughs> that was a bank that told you that. Not a, was, not this a... was this was a bank, and it was my bank. It was my company's bank, you know, and it was a bank where I had more money than the loan than I was, you know, being offered or asking about. It just seemed uh, a little bit strange and wacky, and you know, and then I realized, and, and I'm somebody who worked in finance, and I had no idea how harsh uh, things had gotten. And I don't remember if this was this was probably 2011, 2010, somewhere in there. You know, it, it was post mortgage bond market collapse. Um, and the bank that I'd even started with wasn't the bank that I was with because uh, I, I specifically, I was worried about the mortgage bond market. And in 2007, when I opened the account, I went to uh, Wachovia, which had stayed away from the mortgage bonds for the most part. And suddenly, like within weeks right before the mortgage bond collapse, somehow, boom, they just wound up with you know an enormous balance sheet. And for people who don't know, and this, this is one of the scary things about the banking system that we need to think through, is um, right before the mortgage bond collapse, um, right at the very end, um, the larger banks very aggressively pushed these mortgage bonds onto lots of other banks, in, including community banks, mm -hmm. and pretty much decimated the community banking network throughout the United States. And this is, and you know, it, this is one of the ways in which the U.S. banking network became more centralized. You know, it's hard not to look at that as intentional sabotage in, in retrospect, and should uh, should make people doubt the story that that uh, Wall Street didn't know what was coming with the mortgage buying crisis. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I don't know, you know, if anything similar happened in the U.K. or in Europe, but you know, perhaps you can speak well, to that. The the U.S. is actually, you know, it's, uh, I. I completely understand where you're coming from with a 22% interest rate. It's that sounds much more like a, um, a low, low quality lender than a bank. I'm very surprised that a bank offered that. Yeah, this like, is Wells Fargo. Yeah, this is, oh, well, it's incredibly unfair um, and unethical. Um, but the US has actually been better than the U UK for a while in terms of the um, decentralized nature of the banking system in the US. So in the UK, it's even worse. Um, the top five banks just dominate the UK um, deposits. I think it's either I think it's over ninety percent held by the top five banks of of UK deposits. So it's heavily centralised, and businesses just can't get loans. Small businesses can't. You have no relationship with your bank. Um, you have a telephone call. You you know you call through the helpline and you get a different person each time. Um, and I ex I knew that firsthand because I I visited the sort of the branch that was dealing with it. Um, it, while I was at HSBC. So there was no relationship at all with the bank, which means the bank doesn't really know what your needs are either. So it's completely unfair and unethical. And it doesn't make sense because small businesses aren't riskier than big businesses. This is this is something that people think because, oh, they're smaller, so they must be riskier. And that's why the interest rate's higher. And, and also maybe the banks say that as well. Maybe in economics, again, I was talking about the falsehoods that they teach people. Maybe they're pushing that as well. But it's absolute rubbish. Um, you know, and a lot generally... of what big businesses are are successful small businesses that get that get uh, pushed together to create economies of scale, horizontal or or uh, 
portfolios or or even vertical portfolios uh, going deep within an industry. But small, I don't know what it looks like in the UK, but uh, small businesses do most of the new hiring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, I think I think it's over two thirds of the UK um, small businesses. Sorry, over two thirds of total employment in the UK is through the small businesses. So as every one pound lent to a small business has more employment benefit than a one pound lent to a large business. But it's also because um, regarding the small business and the large business risk, most small business lending is productive, whereas large business lending can be quite unproductive. And unproductive lending results in um, results in not being able to pay back, not being able to um, repay the loan, and also banking crisis, recessions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas small lower business growth lending, in general, exactly lower, lower growth for the whole nation, and that that affects yeah. everyone. Oh, definitely. So, in Germany, in the two thousand eight crisis, not one community bank required taxpayer bailout, not one, because they were lending to small businesses for productive reasons, for productive purposes. Um, so the businesses were able to repay their loans or in the cases where they were struggling, the bank was working with them to make sure they didn't just take all their stuff. And also small businesses tend to have to have more collateral as well and have to have personal guarantees and stuff like that. So not only are the people who are directors and owners of the small businesses more on the line, so they're more likely to want to repay their loan, um, but they have a better, closer relationship with the bank as well, which means they feel more moral obligation to repay the loan. Um, right, their reputation's on the line. Yeah, exactly. I mean, know the bankers as well in their area. You know, they're friends with them. And, and it might be that their father father was started a relationship with the bank. So their grandfather started a relationship with the bank. And it's been a family business for, for 100 years, let's say. Um, and it's always had the same bank. So it's got a very close relationship, which has it has a huge difference on, on this sort of payback and whether or not they feel like they want to pay it back. Whereas with a big bank, who cares? No one wants to pay. No one wants to pay back a big bank. Um you know, no one wants to. They don't feel any relationship. They don't like them. You know, no one likes the big banks apart from the banks themselves. <laughs> um, whereas community banks, people like them. Yeah, you know, there's something about um, it, in almost every aspect of society, having to look your neighbor in the eyes, whether mm -hmm. it's politics, whether it's banking, whether it's business, um, it just works better, right? And and I, I'm going to say this. I didn't know that small businesses were actually less risky loans. Um, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. But th there's multiple ways to look at risk, which is, you know, if you make a $20,000 loan or a $100,000 loan, whether it's a small business or a big business, okay, maybe the small business is riskier in some sense, uh, you know, it, it probably depends on the business and the industry, of course. Mm -hmm. But, but even then, when a big company blows up, you know, suddenly you're talking about bailout level you know, circumstances, you know, long-term capital management. And I was, um, I was working on Wall Street at the time, uh, you know, running a bond portfolio when long-term cap capital management collapsed. And that was, uh, you know, it, that shook the whole, the whole industry. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a giant uh, drawdown on liquidity, not about half as big as the mortgage bond collapse, if I understand correctly. Um, but, um, you know, that amount of money, which requires hundreds of millions of dollars from all these different, you know, large financial entities in order to bail out, you know, that's that's a tax, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, when a when a small business collapses, nobody gets taxed when <laughs> when a big business or a big bank collapses, um, everyone seems to get taxed and, and just sort of has to go along with it because we're told too big to fail. Yeah. Um, and also small businesses, the thing is, as well, they're not actually they're, they're not risky necessarily because 
Um, not only do they have to have that track record, as every business does, like we said, they've got that relationship with the bank. The bank knows them more, knows their business more, knows what their needs are and are very close with the owners and might be visiting the small business because they're in the in the area as well. So when you've got that relationship and you know them, it has a huge difference as well. But also you're, you're giving them products that are actually going to help them. You're talking through what they need from the bank in order to grow. And then, like I said, you've got a difference between productive lending and unproductive lending. Small businesses, you're mostly lending for productive purposes, which means they're using the money to either increase um, like production of goods or they're using it to um, invest in a new machine that can generate more goods or they're improving their services. All these things are productive, which means the business can use the money. It can increase its sales, its revenue and use the new revenue stream to repay the loan. Now, that means you've got credit destruction at the end. You've got credit production, credit creation when they um, lend the money in the first place. And then you've got credit destruction in the end. And in the middle, you've got growth. So what does this uh, what does this end up in? You've got GDP growth without inflation. Whereas unproductive lending, there's two types. You've got unproductive lending for financial speculation and stuff like that. So non-GDP related transactions. So, for example, lending to a financial speculator who wants to... Um, push up the housing market, something like that, um, or just speculate um, on, on, on the stock markets and stuff like that. These are non-GDP related transactions, which means um, you're not helping GDP, but you're increasing credit, which means you're going to have, um, you're gonna have uh, huge recessions, boom bust cycles, because that can only keep going until the tap is turned off. When the tap is turned off, suddenly no new money is pumping into that market the prices are all too high. So suddenly the prices are going to fall. Suddenly the businesses can't repay the loans and you've got a load of uh, bad debt, which means banks struggle and taxpayers have to then step in. And the other type of unproductive lending is called consumptive or um, credit for consumption reasons. Now this is GDP related. So you get GDP growth, but is it good GDP growth? No, it's all inflation. And this is what's happened in the last couple of years. Everyone was begging for money, free money, thinking, oh, this is great. The government's just giving us money. The banks are just giving us money. Fantastic. We can buy our goods and services. We can buy our groceries. And, you know, they're all fools. And now they're all thinking, oh, this is bad. Now we've got inflation. Well, obviously, we were going to get inflation. What did you expect? <laughs> that this money was just going to like not, not lead to any negative repercussions. You've got the whole economy um, struggling and stopping, effectively, for for you know the government restrictions that were put in place, and well, money. so there is this weird sort of propaganda in the atmosphere that creation of money does not necessarily lead to inflation, and uh, you know we, we've dubbed this uh, somebody dubbed this modern monetary theory. I don't even know where where that term came from, or if it was just sort of seeded into the ether so that mm -hmm. nobody was responsible for it. Uh, <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, this, this is this relates a bit to what happened with quantitative easing. I didn't know that uh, uh, that Richard was the inventor of the idea of quantitative easing. Yeah. So in the 90s, I think it was in Japan, he um, he as he was building his, his theory, um, the quantity theory, the quantity theory of credit. It used to be called when it first started, it was the disaggregated quantity no sorry the quantity theory of disaggregated credit and then he changed it to the quantity theory of credit um and i think it was when he was writing that and doing his sort of phd and working with the bank of japan and stuff like that and he was looking into the prince of the yen and, and how the bank of japan was was dealing with the, the 80s and the 90s he was actually pushing um his new policy tool he was saying to the big banks you need to increase credit creation to small businesses 
and he and he decided to term it quantitative easing. And he was featured in the Nikki, a double page spread, Professor Richard Werner, quantitative easing. And it was all about what his policy tool was. People have forgotten that. And the central banks have slightly changed the definition of quantitative easing. And now it's got a bad name. People think, oh, this is bad. You're just creating new money and that's going to lead to inflation. Well, that's not actually what the policy tool was that Professor Richard Werner originally defined it as. It's yeah, a good I'm, I, And I'm oh. going to step in. I'm, I'm going to highly recommend this book. Um, uh, I don't know how many of my viewers know this, but I was a, um, I was a Japanese bond trader on Wall Street uh, <laughs> at the time. That uh, that Richard was was doing that work, and uh, I've I, and almost everything that I read about what happened in Japan was wrong. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I just every, you know everything the newspaper said, everything I saw on TV, it was very frustrating. Um, but and then I found uh, Richard's book, and I was oh, finally something that that tells a, a reasonable version of the story. But he goes into uh, he goes into very great detail about at least you know you can't pierce all the politics, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of his point. In the story, which is, um, you know, no one actually knew exactly who was pulling the levers behind the scenes, but you could see that there was an organized policy, you know, change that was being enacted, and it, it wasn't quite clear, you know, why or where the levers were coming from. But then, fast forwarding to um, to um, you know the mortgage bond crisis, um, what was what was done with the Federal Reserve was dubbed quantitative easing, but it wasn't quite the same thing. We had all these bonds in the market, but they were basically just swapped out for dollars mm. in the market, right? Like the Federal Reserve had, you know, printed a whole bunch of dollars, but really and truly the money was already in the system. So when the swap occurred, we didn't see inflation and that confused a lot of people, but that's because the creation of the bonds themselves are the creation of money. So, so to go quickly about the, the 80s and 90s and, and pulling the strings and stuff like that, the other thing about that worth mentioning is, is the Bank of Japan and um, sort of people in the know were pushing it on the Ministry of Finance. So people thought it was Ministry of Finance pulling the strings and that they were in full control, when in fact it was Bank of Japan um, and the governor of the Bank of Japan or the, um, the one down from him, depending, because um, you had princes, as the book is called, Princes of the Yen, um, which were brought up from um, from a young career. They were they were named as the prince of that Bank of Japan. They were brought up through the, the central bank, and they were sort of um, groomed to be um, the, the person for the for the powers above. And every um, time the governor was switched, it would be it would either through Bank of Japan ranks, or it would have to come from a Ministry of Finance. They took it in turns. So whenever it was a Ministry of Finance person that came in to be the governor then they didn't really know what was going on. They thought, oh, interest rates. Okay, we'll be in control of interest rates. We think, yeah, that's fine. And you do everything else. And that governor believed that interest rates did everything. But every time a prince then came into power as the governor, they knew fully what was in control. And they were mostly in control of the credit creation process and window guidance. So, um, yeah, and, and that's actually a funny table that Richard produced, which is the official narrative and what was being told in the official forecast, and then Richard's forecast, and then reality. And there's about 10 different points where it's, this is what people think is going to happen. And the media is saying, this is what Richard says. And in reality, what Richard says came true almost every time. Um, so that's quite amusing. But but yeah, uh, I mean, in the 2008, there was just a large amount of, if you're talking about the 2008 crisis, then it's a large amount of financial um, credit created for financial speculation purposes and um, unproductive lending, which resulted in then once that ratio goes out of whack, so you've got um, basically good credit versus bad credit. When the bad credit ratio gets too high, you then get the banking crisis and the recessions and the boom bust.
Okay, so how does a DAO function in a way that solves the problems of irresponsible large-scale actions? Yep. So the DAO itself, so the DAO is just part of the puzzle. So the framework for this is you want the community bank set up. You want a decentralized banking system. That's the most important part. You want many small community banks that only lend to small businesses. So that's the key part. The DAO element is just a lovely bit on top because what we're doing is then democratizing finance, democratizing the whole lovely and attractive central bank credit lines that normally people don't get any benefit from, um, but the big bankers do. Um, and also decentralizing the sort of governance framework in place for these banks. Um, so it makes it very difficult to take over because not a bank or um, a large party can't come in and take over the DAO easily at all. It's very difficult to take over a DAO which has um, a voting structure in place and tokenomics like we're going to do it. Um, so not only is that very difficult, um, but the decentralized governance framework is all about setting up new banks. It's not so much about managing the existing banks, i.e. the community banks that we set up. It can't be because regulators would not allow that. So the DAO is not governing, if you like, the bank lending process and who the banks lend to because they're not allowed to do that. You can't have a decentralized governance framework for that. The banks so, have to be managed by the, um, by the regulated people. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. We have a lot of viewers who don't know a great deal yet about cryptocurrency. Some of them, um, some of our viewers are very educated about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But um, explain a DAO. Uh, you know, you're, you're explaining how it is. It's hard to have regulatory capture of a DAO. Is that a good way to put it? Uh, so it's effectively you have like um, a, a company that has thousands of um Think of it like shareholders, thousands of shareholders that are each having their own voice and can submit their proposals and can view what everyone else is doing and what they're voting on because it's all on chain. So all these governance token holders each have a voice and can submit proposals. They can all vote on these proposals and everyone can see what's happening and and how the DAO's resources, how the company's resources are being used effectively. It's all on chain. It's all transparent, um, which stops a select few individuals making all the decisions that ultimately can lead to malicious actions and, you know, with, with power comes corruption and stuff like that. So it tries to eliminate a lot of that. So it's called a decentralized autonomous organization. So, so part of the value of a DAO is that there is automatic transparency. Since, since all of the information is going through a blockchain and everyone has view of the blockchain, you yeah. don't have anything like, like a, a backroom committee who is deciding what each level of participant is allowed to know and allowed to see. Um, which, which essentially makes it very hard to have um, non-transparent, you know, backroom deals. Uh, but not only that, um, you're keeping the banking network small. So capture the work that would need to be done. Not only is it harder to capture the network, but there would be less uh, value accrued from one capture if we're talking about a network of organizations. Is that so? It's no. So the DAO itself, um, the foundation, we want the network to be big because that's what we're ultimately aiming for. It's going to take many years for it to grow that big because you can effectively set up 1,000 banks in one country, and that's just one country. You know, the Sparkasten in Germany has 1,500 community banks. In the UK, there's very, very few at the moment, maybe one or two. So you could set up 1,500 in the UK, well, maybe not that many because it's slightly smaller, maybe 1,000 in the UK, for example, and then that's just one country. So the foundation, the DAO, will own the banking system that we're going to set up. The DAO is responsible for setting up the banking system, for growing the community banking system. 
And then each community bank that is set up has its own balance sheet, has its own banking license, and is managed by those bankers in that area who are regulated. It's just the dividends flow because the shareholder of the bank is the foundation, the DAO. The dividends flow from the banking system up to the DAO. And then the governance token holders are then responsible for the use of those resources, responsible for the use of those profits and dividends that have come in, which democratizes the whole, the whole ownership system of the bank. Have all the governance tokens been sold or, or is Valhalla still taking uh, uh, funds to, to help build this network? We're still early stage. So we launched in January and then very quickly we had an oversubscribed seed round. And then within about two, three months, we raised another sort of five, six million. So in total, we've raised about 7.5 million euros uh, because we took a little bit of a break from fundraising. But we're in our Series A now, um, about 70% through it. So we're, we're raising about 10.5, 11 million in total for our Series A. Then once that's complete, we'll do a Series B next year. Um, so yeah, we're still in the SAFT stage, so the private investor stage where minimum investment is all 30,000 euros um, to get in. Um, and then when we launch our token, which we're going to try and delay as long as possible, because as soon as you launch your token, you have and you go public and anyone can buy it um, for any amount of money, um, you know, five euros, stuff like that investing. Um, it becomes very difficult because you've got many more st uh, sort of stakeholders to try and impress. And you've got lots of people demanding your attention and, you know, um, token price going down, developers do something, you know, when moon. You know, all this rubbish that they're just <laughs> interested in, whereas all we're interested in building a solution that will have long-term impact, uh, which it will. Um, so we're going to delay the token going public for as long as possible until we very much, you know, we we are in a position that we're ready to do it. The bank, the first bank is about to be launched and we need to raise the rest of the money. Um, and then we've done it in a way as well. You know, I won't go into too much detail because it's all in the white paper, but Effectively, the first phase of a project is setting up a very different bank, a specialist um, bank that Richard Werner, Professor Richard Werner and I um, developed the, the banking model for it. Um, that will be set up to start with, which we're working on now, the banking application for it. That job of that bank is to, um, is to generate dividends and profits quicker in a, in a more, um, is to get the, effectively the DAO supported quicker so that the token holders are happy, the DAO is happy, and that we can then focus on phase two, which is the establishment of community banks um, early on without having to worry about the sort of sustainability of a project. And then the community banks, after a few years, they'll be start self-sustaining as well. And they'll be generating the dividends flowing up to the DAO. And then we set up more banks and more banks and we grow the network. What guarantees that the loans are profitable? Sorry? Uh, what guarantees that the loans are profitable, that the network grows instead of uh, erodes? <laughs> so... There is no guarantee. We can't make any guarantee because, you know, that would be um, that would be daft for us to say definitely the investment work or anything like that. And also it's not security. It's a, it's a utility token. So utility token of the DAO itself. I can talk about the foundation because that has shares in the banking system. I mean, that's very different. It's actually a security. So the foundation should make a very high um, five year profit of over 500 percent um, ROI in five years, which for a real world project that hasn't got hype attached to that number at all. It's just dividends and the price of those shares, what we forecast them to be. So that's quite impressive for a banking system. Now, to answer your question, okay, how realistic is it? How likely is it to succeed? Well, to start with, it's not easy to get a banking license. You have to complete hundreds of pages of documents to prove to the regulator that the business model that you're going to be using for the bank, that the bank's going to be um, using to operate is sustainable, profitable, and um, you know, it's ethical and stuff like that. 
So the bank regulators will do much more due diligence than any investor can do. They will tear apart our business model, do stress test after stress test to make sure that it's going to work. And it's only when they are comfortable and bearing in mind, they've invested a lot of money and time in, in improving their regulations to ensure the banking system is, is um, the most regulated industry it is. Once they are comfortable to give us a banking license, they're giving us the, the green tick saying, yes, we think this is going to work. And it's only then when we get that first banking license is 100% of the investment is then on the line, if you like. To start with, it's only about 20% because we only use about 20% of what we're raising as cost. Over 80% of the money we raise is just sitting in an account so that regulators can see that we've got the equity for the bank. But it's all, it can all be returned to investors if for some reason the project has to cease or, or has to stop for whatever reason. So it's a very interesting and different project. But yeah, so that's pretty much why it's because we're doing it in a very regulated space. And um, there's a sense in which you, you've got the wind at your back, given that um, you know over the past few decades, uh, community banking has just been decimated all over the world, really. Um, there, there should be demand. And, mm. and if, if, if people are wondering, you know, is, is something like this going to be successful? When a network like this begins, um, you're going to have your, your bankers, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just use that, that term. Um, it, your network will have the, the best pick of, of excellent local business people, right? People who are establishing, you know, something that their community needs, uh, working within their community. Um, you're going to be able to, you know, pick and choose in a sense, um, uh, uh, you know, amongst the people who can use, who can best use that capital. So it is, it, it feels likely to me that something like this, that is first out of the gate has a great opportunity to, you know, expand in a healthy way. Well, you're right. And actually the phase one business model, I won't go into too much detail about because it's, it's different and it's um, more proprietary information. Um, it's, it's something which is more secret because of, um, sort of what it is and, and how how um, profitable it can be and stuff like that. Um, we tend to save that for, for investors and, and go into detail with them. But for the phase two community banks, first off, you're a bank. So you are following um, regulated procedure of looking at the business and making sure it's going to be a successful business. It's going to use the money productively and it's going to be able to repay the loan. So it's got to have a track record. The next point is the fact that you've got the bankers in the area. They know those businesses. They have a they can go around, they can see and they can form that relationship with them. Um, and the last point is these businesses are over collateralized. You over collateralize. You make sure that you've got um, you've either got property or you've got personal guarantees or, you know, sometimes they'll put their own house up as well um, as a for a personal guarantee. So you're over collateralized on the loan that you give out. And in general, small businesses, the ones we'll be targeting through the community bank network will have a default rate under one percent. So you've got a default rate under 1%, and then the loss-given default, considering you're over-collateralized, is going to be close to 0%. So zero, close to 0% with a default rate below 1%, and you can see that actually small business lending for a community bank isn't high risk. And that's, again, that's not why community banking has failed. It, you know, they haven't failed. It's not why community banks have, have gone. It's just because they're being bought up. They're so good that the business model, oh, this bank's profiting, let's buy it. But in Germany, the sparkars and they weren't able to do that. You know, people couldn't, the big bank bothered to do. Um, so, yeah, it's an exciting one. <laughs> and we're not competing either. That's another point. We're not competing with the big banks, like you said. There's a market need. Um, over 90% of the small businesses we um, surveyed last year um, in one area of the country responded that they would seriously consider switching to us. And that was the highest sort of 
highest positive um, point on the survey, they would seriously consider switching to a community bank if it was to start in their area. So we're not competing with the big banks. They don't care about small businesses. They don't want the small businesses. They would rather another bank came in and took them all off their took them all off their customer base so that they can focus on the bigger businesses. So question, is the plan to start in the UK? No. So we're starting in the Eurozone. Um, so our first bank is launching in the EEA, um, and that's for phase one. And then the phase two as well will start launching in the EEA as well. Um, we will review in a couple of years exactly which country will be best for us to first target, because obviously as the DAO starts, the team has more influence because you want to get it on the ground. You want to get the wheels in motion. You want to make sure it's sustainable and, and everyone's protected. Um, however, over time, it will become more and more decentralized as um, not only are the team um, selling small amounts after they've released their tokens in a few years' time, they're locked in for a long time, but also um, the public, more the public are coming into it. So the voting is more decentralized. But effectively, it will be up to the token holders. So token holders will look at the countries and put together proposals as to which area of which country we think the new community bank should be launched in. And these are the reasons why. And they can actually do work. We can give them like a template of what we need to see, what um, an external company that would look at this would need to see to make a decision. And they can do all that work and they can earn, they can earn rewards for doing that work as a governance token holder. And then token holders vote on it. And then if it goes through a couple of stages of, of, um, of approval, then we would use that um, decision, that proposal to then set up a bank in that area. We would invest the money, set up the bank in that area, um, which would be the Eurozone start. We start the Eurozone, it's more comfortable for us. We know what we're doing more in the Eurozone. And then eventually we expect to target Africa. That's a big one for us because it's got a massive need for community banks there because um, that will really help their GDP growth. Um, South America, North America, basically every continent needs um, community banks. So this can be a huge global network we can start up. And in 20 years, maybe more like 30, 40 years, <laughs> I see this having thousands of banks within the Valhalla network all across the continents of the world, um, all as little hubs that are economic growth for the local area, um, helping their local businesses and, and the local people. You know, there's something interesting about Africa. Um, I, I would think that uh, in general, big banks would be hesitant to lend to Africa or they have historically. Um, on the other hand, if what you have is something like a, a Dow network, you probably have a sort of an, an automatic selection bias toward the most educated people in Africa who would who would reach for a loan, which, which could create uh, a really exceptional early feedback loop in some sense. I, I could see a project like this being better for Africa than for the developed parts of the world. Well, Africa needs it more than, I'd say, more than most countries. Um, I say Africa as a whole, a cluster of countries. Um, because they don't have a banking system really at all um, in many of the countries there. But their small businesses are not being supported in any way. Now, shareholders, private private sector just giving money and, and lending and, and investing in small businesses is okay. But that doesn't result in economic growth. You need credit creation. You need a banking system there to support them. So you're right. It is desperately needed in Africa. Um, so uh, sorry, I, I, I was about to ask a question that uh, that in a sense I've already asked. Um, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll just pass the baton back to you for a moment. Um, uh, or, or, or maybe I'll, I'll ask the question, um, you know, where did the idea for this 
come from initially? Like what, what was the, the impetus to say, okay, um, there is room for a community banking network and that's the thing that a DAO would apply to? So that was, as mentioned at the start of the call, when I was working with Richard and working with the councils, it was inefficient. Um, councils take a long time to make decisions. They're not bankers. Um, them sitting on the board can cause complications, stuff like that, with regulators who don't really like it. Um, so, you know, all these things and being rejected as well by councils, even if the council wanted to do it, just because of red tape and just because of what government regulations mean and stuff like that for them, um, was giving me the idea that this should be nothing to do with the councils. This should be the people themselves all over the world being involved in this. So it's truly democratic and, and decentralized ownership structure. Um, and through that, you can raise much more money to set up more of these banks. And over time, it will grow quicker. And you can do this all across the world. Because in every country, um, even Germany to a certain extent, even though Germany is the home of community banking. Well, actually, no, <laughs> mistaken. The UK really is the home of community banking. Germany's like the the the, um, the next one down, and they then improved on it and set it up perfectly. What does that um, mean, the home of community banking? Like like where it sort of birthed as a as yeah, a national phenomenon. Well, where community banking really started, um, where these small banks lending to small businesses really started. But then the Sparkasen is so successful and has been um, around for so long now. Um, but even in Germany, where you've got fifteen hundred community banks in the Sparkasen they could still have more community banks and it, it doesn't harm at all. You would just be increasing competition then, which is good for consumers. It's good for the small businesses in the area. So even Germany can have community banks. So they're needed everywhere. You know, this is a massive market need for Valhalla network. And if someone else on another project wanted to do the same thing or something very similar, great. We're not stopping them. We wouldn't be annoyed with that because a world's a huge place, you know, <laughs> set up loads of people can do this. Fine. I don't mind. It right, it's also competing models too. And who knows, you know, maybe some of those community banks will decide, you know, maybe uh, maybe we're better off just buying some tokens uh, in the uh, governance tokens in the Valhalla network. And sort of if your model proves superior to theirs, they can just become your model in a sense. Is that right? So don't forget the DAO itself. The mission of the DAO is to establish the banks under the net, under the DAO. The DAO itself is not a bank. It's the governance of the resources of this overall foundation. But the banks themselves are underneath. It's owned by the foundation. So it's a separate entity. Um, the banks themselves have their business model. And yes, you might see other community banks saying, well, it's a shame we're not part of our higher network. However, there's no reason why you don't have a really good relationship with them. That's what's so great about community banks and like the Sparkars. They have such good relationship with each other that they can support each other. And there's no reason why a bank outside of Valhalla network couldn't work with a bank inside Valhalla network. And if they wanted to be part of Valhalla network, it wouldn't be that they bought governance tokens. In fact, it'd be the other way around where their shareholders would have to sell their shares to the foundation, to the DAO, and the DAO would buy them out um, and they would become part of the network. Um, so it's a slightly different way around. Got it. So uh, explain to the audience, what is the difference between a governance token and a security token because you know um, it, it, it's an easier concept to think hey um, security tokens may replace like stock shares in yes. the future right um, if somebody thinks hey i want to buy shares of apple it may be that apple shares are sold instead as tokens in the future yeah. and you can just simply see them on your phone in your wallet or however however you may do that put them in cold storage whatever you want um, 
so so it, it's one thing to say, okay, um, we have these you know cryptocurrency tokens and they replace uh, other sort of deeds of assets. Okay, so what about a governance token? Why is it that a governance token would be exchangeable for value? So the governance token, people are working. They are part of the um, governance framework. They are submitting proposals, voting on them. So they're not just sitting back and doing nothing, but also there's no um, guaranteed or expected profit to be had by having a governance token. Um, you know, people can make up their own mind as, as to whether they think the value will go up or down. We're not marketing it, but it will go up or down. Um, it's it's part of the community. It's part of the overall community to make sure that the mission is successful. So people who are supporting the overall mission and want it to be successful should be a governance token holder because then they can submit and vote on proposals and make sure it's successful. Whereas a lot of tokens are just for speculati speculatory purposes, um, speculative purposes, that's the word. Um, and they've got no, there's no reason for the token to exist other than, like you said, to be like shares um, and to be um, tokenized shares where you get some sort of expected profit or you just hold it for the price to go up or you get, you know, a, in, in crypto it's called staking reward, um, which isn't a dividend. It's very different unless the staking reward is paid in a different token. Um, but if it's paid in the in the domestic token, then that's not that's not a dividend. It's not a security. So you will have multiple tokens within this network. No. Sorry, no. be, so this is one token network. The staking rewards that are paid out to the token holders are paid in the native token, in the domestic token. Um, and that's based on how many people are staking and what the dividends flowing into the foundation are from a banking system because we want to support the staking reward instead of just giving tokens out and then having a higher, you know, the token um, number going up over time, which doesn't really help anyone. We want to be able to support that with um, with dividends that are in the in the foundation from the banking system. So we can say that and stuff like that doesn't mean that it's a security. So, you know, there's, there's different regulations and rules and the Howey test and stuff like that. So you have to be very careful. Like I said, we expect the foundation to make profits, but that doesn't mean token holders are going to make profits because the token price might go up, it might go down. You know, it's it's up to the the public whether or not that happens or not, and whether or not they want to buy into it. We believe that over time, as the network grows and as we can show that we've got a banking license and we're successful and we're growing, more people will want to become part of this network. So overall, the demand will go up. Um, so however, it, it's no... almost like a buy-in to a to civic participation in a sense. Yeah, the, those are the kinds of people who would want to buy governance tokens, and and they can still sell them later to somebody else who wants to rotate into participating in the system. But it's very much a leadership network. It's a leadership network. It's a it's community. It's community, um, a member-owned community, effectively. So you are part of this community trying to achieve this mission. And to become a member of it, you need to buy governance tokens. So we believe that that demand will go up over time. But so for anyone... a governance token, if I could interrupt. So for a governance yeah. token holder, the profit is not in achieving an asset that's worth more than it was before, though it, it could be. The, the, the profit is in seeing your community be able to grow because it has a banking network that makes sense for the community. Perhaps. Um, you know, I've got to be very careful with how much how much to talk about when it comes to profits and expected profits. Um, it's, you know, we're not putting out any expected profits. What I would say to anyone interested more in, in the governance token fact and then how our model works and how the, the flow of funds work is to carefully read our white paper um, and, and read it read it very carefully and look into the model and what, and what we are expected to do. Um, and they can make their own mind up. That's all I would say. 
I appreciate that. It, it, it's unfortunate that that we live in a world right now that is so overregulated that you have mm-hmm. to uh, that you have to watch your words. That even something said uh, casually uh, might be something that a regulator might hone in on, um, <laughs> especially in a world where um, where we have to be worried that the regulators could be captured and could be uh, malicious actors. Uh, to some degree, but th- that seems like exactly the reason why the world should be learning, you know, how DAOs operate and participating in some of these types of solutions. And, and uh, you yeah, it's, it, it, we are in this... jumping... oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 I'm just going to jump in as well and say, if, if for some reason, and if in the future, the regulators decide that the governance tokens of DAOs and especially our DAO were classified mm-hmm. as security, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. It's just we don't. It's not classified now as a security, and what we're projecting isn't. Wouldn't make it classified. Um, however, it wouldn't be a problem if it was. What it would mean is that we have to adhere to to certain. Um, you know, we'd have to register. We'd have to adhere to certain rules um, that otherwise we we don't have to adhere to right now. Um, however, there's many other tokens in the space that would first have to, that are much more. You know, I'd say in the in the lens of a regulator than ours. Like we're doing our best to try and adhere to all the regulations at the moment. We're doing our best to say, look, it's not a security. This is why it's not security. Look, they can do work. The governance token holders are actually working for any staking reward. Um, it's not they're just sitting on their hands and doing nothing because we can tie people's staking reward into how many proposals and how much they're voting on proposals and stuff like that. Um, so they're actually working for it. And there's no like expected, there's no um, promised return or anything like that. Um, so we're doing our best to ensure we, we stick with the regulations. However, there's many tokens out there that aren't. And at the moment, they're still saying that they're not security. So I would say if anything changed in the future, obviously, we're going to adhere to regulations as best we can. And we will work with the regulators and be very honest with them. Um, but we wouldn't be the first one in their line, lens. We're doing at the moment, we're much more closely, you know, as in, in our eyes, we, we adhere to them completely. Right, right. Um, you, you, you're you're making sure that you do the dance right, so that nobody you know uh, is, is disappointed by the by the proposition and, and what the network can accomplish. Uh, yeah. There, um, I don't know what the what the regulations look like in in the UK, but right now the there's this concept of the Howey test. Are you yeah. familiar with the Howey test yeah, in, in, in the US? Yes. Yeah. Does, does it get applied in Europe in a similar way? It's basically the bare bones of of, of whether or not we believe our token is security is the how we test. That's like the first thing. The second is to then, once we're sure and once we feel comfortable that we've passed it, um, that's when we then get legal advice um, that we're in the process now of going through. You know, this is still a startup, so um, we had to raise money before we can do all this. We're in yeah. the process now of getting all the legal advice in, in place. And and if and if for some reason um, legal advice came back and said, look, we're not 100% sure these are reasons why, we would then make sure that we listen to their advice and we apply it and we make sure that the tokenomics and everything works to, to make sure that we're not a security because we don't think- right. It's been be a long security. time since people have had to think about whether or not um, they buy an asset for the purpose of a profit or whether or not that, that's the, like an expected reason. There, there's sort of a weird you know, mind reading aspect of, of that whole question um, that I, I hope that it sort of dissolves in the era of, in the era of cryptocurrency. Uh, I suspect that it will eventually, but it's probably just gonna sort of be a thorn you know, an archaic thorn in our sides for, uh, you know, some number of years, maybe some number of decades to come as um, as it is that regulations either. I don't know. I, I think there's a certain aspect of regulatory bodies that can and should just disappear. But, it, you know, if nothing else, just, you know, uh, change the expectations um, for 
for uh, how, you know how governance works. Um, you know because there are things that people should want to buy, whether or not um, there's a profit. But then you know when I say should. Um, am I saying that there's a profit that's non-monetary, like, you know, profit of the spirit, a profit of seeing your, of, of your community become healthier and grow. And, and of course, you know, yeah. people are so used to thinking of profit in terms of money and GDP and utility is not always earned in terms of money. It, it's mm. part of the problem, you know, that economists have with GDP as a concept. Uh, which is that we're not really measuring utility. We're not measuring benefits of the world. We're just measuring the the easiest thing to grasp onto. Yeah, that's that's true. And like how we test as well is a, is, is a large extent the the work of others. So there's another reason why we're going to tie it to the governance and how much they're participating and how much they're actually caring and wanting the you know to to be voting on stuff that will impact any staking reward that they might get. Um, so that's another reason, but. On that topic of um, of regulations and everything, it's it's like we are applying for a banking license, or we will be applying for a banking license. This is the most regulated space that we're in. And some people might say, "Well, you're a foundation that's governed by token holders to the ownership of the bank. Are regulators ever going to approve that?" Well, firstly, the the one regulated sorry one regulated um, spaces we're first approaching is very crypto linked. Secondly, we've done KYC and AML on all our private investors. And that's what the regulators really care about is where the money's come from. That's that's what they care about. They want to make sure that it's not related to terrorism and it's not black market and there's no dodgy dealings or- It's not laundering. Exactly, that's what they care about. So as long as we can show regulators, look, just because we've raised it and the governance of of the foundation, the foundation will be governed by these token holders and many people, they might not get that 100%, but what they're really interested in is where's the money coming from? That's all we want because the money's being invested by the foundation in the bank, great. Who's who's put that money in the foundation? And that's what we can answer very clearly. So we'll just be very honest with the regulators, answer all their questions. And like I said, the, the regulators that we're approaching to start with are very friendly and very cooperative. Um, and the consultants we've spoken to so far have, have sort of confirmed that and said that they don't believe there'll be any problems. and. There will just likely be many questions that we have to answer. Okay, so what if um, what if somebody comes along and says, uh, "I'm going to build Valhalla 2. <laughs> they're not even going to be original about the name. They're, they're just gonna, they're going to create a nearly identical DAO and banking network. Um, does that does that compete with you in a way that is harmful? So as I mentioned earlier in the call, I wouldn't mind at the end of the day because community banks are important. You know, we're not being precious about this, saying, no, only we can do this and then we have to do it all. No. What I would be annoyed about is obviously if they just stole the name. (laughs) (laughs) If they stole what we were doing and tried to make themselves out to be us, that would annoy me because that would be like... And then their CEO changes his name to Oliver Studd. (laughs) Yeah. And and had some sort of surgery um, to make himself (laughs) look worse. Um, But uh, no, if all that happened, I'd be annoyed because then they're deceiving people. They're trying to deceive people and stuff like that. However, that's that's a different question. If they're just trying to launch something that's similar to us and a similar business model and they're trying to do good and they're trying to do something that's ethical, great, because community banks are important. Does it compete with us? Well, if they were starting their community banks in the same area of the same country, then yes, it would be competing with us. However, that's unlikely. And second, if it did happen for whatever reason, fine. Competition's good. It's good for businesses. 
there's enough businesses and enough um, people in the area, enough depositors, and and that the community bank, two community banks, could be working together or very closely in proximity. Yeah, and, and, and I imagine too that um, you know one size fits all protocol. Um, it may not be as good as several different fits. And I and I don't know exactly how um, how the DAO works in in your case. Um, I, I have not. Uh, read through the specifics, but you know, suppose somebody has just a, a slightly different take on the Valhalla mm -hmm. network, um, but otherwise does something central, uh, a banking network. Um, and, and let's say they, they tweak one particular thing. Maybe they are more successful in certain communities and you are more successful in other certain communities. And that's great because each network can match itself to the community that it best supports and vice versa. You're right. However, keep in mind that the Valhalla Network DAO is not a bank. It sets up the banks, but each bank is managed by the bankers in the area. So that's the great thing about the model is that the bankers in the area for that community bank will know. So, what's right so governance does not mean that it sets policies for the banks. The banks no, still no, no. have have very wide latitude over the policies that it sets. Yeah, and, and that if if the Valhalla Network DAO, the foundation, tried to do that, we wouldn't get a banking license because the regulators need to know. Who's in control of the bank? Who is is making the rules? Who are making the decisions? Who are putting in the policies in place? And then they need to regulate those people. So um, they need to have an interview with the regulators to make sure that they are fit and proper for their senior management job. You can't do that with a DAO. You can't do that with all the token holders. It wouldn't be feasible. And you wouldn't want it because you want the people in the area of that community bank to make the decisions that are right for those businesses and right for that bank. The Valhalla Network DAO itself all that the mission of it is to allocate the resources, use the resources in the best way, because it might be that the, the governance token holders want to allocate 30% of the total year's sort of dividends that come in to a charitable initiative in Africa or something like that. You know, you never know what governance token holders will want to do. However, it's the job of them to use the resources and then invest in setting up more of these community banks. But exactly how the community banks will function is up to the up to the um to the bankers in that area. However, what will be important is that it's focused on small businesses only and only in the area, in, only in that area. That is what we can sort of dictate and, and push on the bank. But all the little details and exact lending decisions and the credit criteria and all that, that's up to the bankers. But again, until the, regula the regulators have to see all that, that the bankers are putting together before they'll give the license. So it has to be you know fit and proper and approved and, and good and, and profitable and all that. Oh, wonderful. I, I wish you the best of luck with uh, Valhalla Network. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have a hard stop today. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd love to keep discussing this and, and get a better and better idea of how uh, the network works and operates. Um, but but for viewers, I mean, essentially, this is a restoration of banking within communities. This is, you know, uh, market capitalism at its at its most local in a sense, even if it is a broad network, even if it is, uh, you know, governed by um, by a, a larger charter. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Oliver. And uh, and I, I hope to speak with you again sometime soon. And for those uh, who are not familiar with decentralized autonomous organizations, yeah, this is a good time to start uh, reading about it because this is the way the world is changing. Um, you know, we there are some things that can be automated that, that are not harmful in any way and are hard to capture. Um, and, and it may be more difficult to capture than the way the world currently runs. So, you know, I would encourage people who don't know as much about, you know, uh, cryptocurrency or DAOs uh, to do some reading and think about, you know, um, 
you know, there are some ways in which technology can can over centralize the world. But uh, this is this is not what that is. Um, this is simply, um, you know, uh, or this is simply taking the things that that should be automated in order that they cannot be uh, rearranged by an outside force without something like a total network takeover. Thanks for joining us today, Oliver, and, and talking with us about Valhalla Network and uh, wish you the best. Of course. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate you inviting me on. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to figure out how to play the outro.